0: So I usually like to start with a question, and one of the things that you hear in the church and in Scripture that we don't often think about is, why do we use the term brother and sister? Where does that come from? What's the basis for that? And so when we've looked at the church in the past few weeks, we've looked at the analogy of the church's body and the church's bride and the different things that distinguishes the church. But what about the language of brother and sister, the the familial terms? Well, we know that Jesus told us, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? It is those who do the will of the Father. But is there something deeper that leads to that? Is there something that must come first before we can be called brothers and sisters? Because as we're going to see this morning, the church is to see God as Father and Christ as brother, which makes us brothers and sisters in an eternal, unchangeable sense. But how do we get there? And so, I'm just saying right up front, this is my favorite doctrine. And since it's my favorite doctrine, uh, i got a lot to say this morning. So, hopefully you don't have lunch plans, because we may just feast on the Word of God right through lunch this morning. Amen? (laughs) Let's see how many amens I'd get. But the reason this is my favorite doctrine, it's the favorite of of many. Um, We're going to talk about adoption this morning, by the way. Because it gives the fullness and meaning to our union with Christ. And it brings it home more closely. It brings us home. It gives us our belonging. It gives us our place of residence in our eternal destination. This morning is going to be the personal nature of the church. And so how? How does adoption make the church personal? Because what it does as it takes wretched sinners like us, those who in our very hearts would hate God and rebel against Him with every fiber of our being, but pays our debts, covers our sins, brings us into the home of not just a loving Father, but a glorious King, and makes us rich for eternity. That is what adoption means for the believer. So why was the eternal Son, Jesus, who is Son for all of eternity, needs nothing? Why was He made man? So that man might be made sons of God. And why was the incarnate Son? He didn't need to take on flesh. Why did He take on flesh? So that carnal man, those of us born in flesh, can see what it means to live as sons of God, and through his life, become sons of God. This gives the gospel a personal touch, but it also gives it a depth that just forgiveness of sins can't get to. And so this morning, I'm going to draw on J.I. Packer a lot. In in knowing God, reading his chapter on adoption uh, just blew my mind and brought a depth to the gospel that I had never seen before. But he says, to be forgiven by a judge is one thing. But to be accepted by a loving father is a much greater thing entirely. And that's what we're going to deal with this morning. And so before we talk more about adoption, I want to share these words from Fanny Crosby. who's a poet and, and hymn writer, uh, blind godly woman. Uh, wrote a lot of hymns you would know, probably most famously, Blessed Assurance. But she wrote one called Adoption, and here's what she says. I am adopted, O wonderful love, heir to the heritage purchased above. Tell it, my soul, and joyfully sing, I am a child and heir of the King. Oh, what a father, how tenderly gracious. Oh, what a Savior to make me His care. Though I have slighted, rejected, and grieved Him, still He permits me His kingdom to share. This is such a beautiful doctrine. But again, as with many of the things we find in Scripture, our modern connotation falls short. Adoption is very common in in our our culture, and it's a good thing, but it was much more rare back then. So if if you've gone through the Old Testament at length, you've been in our Deuteronomy study, you don't see anything on adoptive principles in Israel. It didn't really exist. Adoption was primarily for the, um, the Roman nobility, who didn't have an heir, who wanted their name to carry on. So typically, if someone had the, 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 the power and desire to adopt you, they were a person of means. And this did not happen often. Because in that culture, especially in Greco-Roman culture, children were, were throwaways. If you had too many children, if one became a burden, if one had any defects, you could take them outside the city and just leave them in a dump somewhere. So for someone to take a child who was not theirs and bring them into their house and give them their name, it was a big thing. And then the other thing that we don't get as, as Westerners, I don't know if any of you have grown up in Eastern culture, but your family lineage, who you are tied to, your last name, the honor and shame of your family, you will carry with you for your entire life. And it affects everything. It affects your status, it affects your future, it affects your, your reputation. Everything is tied to whose house you live in and whose name you come from. This is why genealogies are so important in Scripture, and we get bored and we, we, we read past them and skip through them. But to those Jews who are reading the the, the Scriptures, this was their pride and their their dignity and their history, and they held it closely. They know who they came from. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but this is why the New Testament begins with a genealogy in Matthew. Because it is so important to show that Jesus is the rightful son of David, as we sang earlier, son of Abraham. So, and the other thing that's important to note here, is that there were privileges of sons in a very formalized culture that we don't have. Now, we can kind of go up and talk to anyone who we would, we would want to talk to, and there's not much of a barrier. But if you were a servant, a slave, a foreigner, or a stranger, you had no right or opportunity to approach the head of the house. You had no one who was, was your representative. You could not just go up to a, a rich man and say, hey, can I have a job? Or could, can, it, can you do this for me? But a son could. A son could stand before the most powerful man in the kingdom. A son could stand before the king and make whatever request he wanted. But if you're not a son, you had to approach very cautiously, if you were even allowed to approach. So when we think about adoption, it has all the meaning that we have in our culture of a family bringing in an unwanted child, but so much more. Because when we think about adoption and what it means for the church, this defines our identity, our our name, our family, our belonging, our inheritance. And I will make the argument that this is the greatest privilege of salvation. And I don't say that lightly. This is the greatest privilege of salvation. And the sad thing is that most people do not teach on it and much more people do not understand it. I said this is my favorite doctrine and I hope by the end of the day this is your favorite doctrine as well. The greatest privilege of salvation. Because yes, justification is a great thing. And yes, sanctification is a great thing. And yes, forgiveness of sins and everything else that comes along with that. But that only makes you right with a judge. But in addition to that, that judge brought you home and made you a son and gave you a share with his legitimate son even though you are illegitimate. And all of the blessings that go with that. And so, don't just believe me, we're going to lay out the case in Scripture. So this is something that is actually opened up by, by John. John gets into adoption quite a bit, even though he never uses the term. Paul is the only one to use the term. And so Paul uh, expands on what John lays down. So we're going to begin in John. So open your Bibles to John's Gospel. And then we're going to look at Paul's definitions, and then we're ultimately going to land in Romans 8. you will need your bibles this morning i promise hopefully you can and will follow along with me so if you have john open you may not have noticed this when we went through john but john is a very spiritual gospel so john deals with the the nature of salvation in the spiritual realm and we get his great prologue where he opens up god's plan of salvation and look at the language he uses in chapter one beginning in verse 11 he came to his own the Israelites who were natural born sons and his own people did not receive him verse 12 but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God this will be important as we go on later no one is owed this this is a right that is given by God Nothing we do, look how this happens, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you believe, you are given the right to become a child of God, you were born again, but how? How does that happen? Turn to chapter 3. This great interchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel, who should be a teacher and should know these things, but proves his ignorance in front of Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, first birth, natural birth, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this birth, Jesus is not talking about going back into your mother's womb. This is what threw Nicodemus for a loop. He's talking about a spiritual birth, something that does not happen in flesh and blood. And as we saw in chapter 1, it is the will of God. And that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. There's a necessity that you must be born again. There is something new that must happen in you that is not in your natural state. And there's a distinction here between those who are born of water or born of the flesh and those who are born of the spirit. So when the theological term we use for being born again is regeneration. To be be born anew. And this is the process of redemption for recreation. You are redeemed to be recreated. You are redeemed so that you can have a birth just like you had no control over your first birth. You have no control over your second God. It is a work of God who brings you in and it is a, but at the same time, Jesus is compelling Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. So there are many more examples I can draw, but I want to fast forward to the end of the book. Chapter 20. When Jesus sees His disciples after the resurrection and the women come up and meet Him at the tomb, look at the language He uses. Because earlier on in the book, He says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. Prior to the resurrection, He knows that they're, they're not just servants. But they're his friends. There's an intimacy there. But after the resurrection, something changes. Look at the language he uses in chapter 20, verse 17. Mary is all excited. She runs into Jesus and she, she, she clings to him. Never leave me. Jesus knows better. Verse 17 Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. I'm not done yet. But go to my brothers after the resurrection. After the price is paid for the adoption, after the work is done to bring in many sons to glory, now he calls them brothers. And look at the language and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Think about that for a moment. The way that Jesus sees God the Father in his full humanity, we are to see God the Father. Our Father, as it is His Father. My God and your God. There is a connection that happens. There is a union with Christ that can only come after the resurrection. And new life and new identity that comes upon the church. But we have to be careful here. Because there are many who say that we are, like, we are exactly like Jesus in every way. This is extremely dangerous. We are like Him in His humanity, but we are not like Him in His deity. We are not equal to Him, we are, are like Him. There is a lot of heresy that, that, that comes out of saying we are like Jesus in every way. Don't hear me saying that. But there is a privilege that comes with sonship that is given to us through the resurrection. And so John continues on this, and you look at his epistle. This is the theme of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John. If not, it will be up on the screen. The theme of 1 John is how we, as Christians, and this is written to new Christians, he calls them little children, newborns. You may be adults, but you are little children. Remember when Jesus said, you must come to me like a child? Now I'm going to talk to you in childish things and and in simple ways. But look at the beautiful language that he uses in chapter 2. Because this doctrine is meant to be an encouragement. The end of 1 John chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices right, righteousness has been born of Him. You shall know the trees by their fruits. Verse 1 of chapter 3, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Man, that is beautiful. We know the love of God. Yes, because He sent His Son, but even more so because we, He... He declared us like His Son and made us children of God. And there's a, a distinction that arises later. Because we are children, we're all children of someone. In John 8, Jesus goes back and forth with the Pharisees. He says, you are children of, of, of your father, Satan. But how do we know? There's, there's a distinction here. There's evidence that comes out of this new birth. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You are sinful, you will sin. But in Christ's You will not make a practice of it. You will not enjoy it and continue in it. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There is a distinction. You all have a father somewhere. And so we're going to get to this distinction when we get to Romans. But now Paul Paul really expands this and defines it well. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, this great list of all the blessings in Christ. Right in the middle, the heart of it, is our adoption. I want to pick up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Look how he frames this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are you, God. Your name, you should be lifted up because of what you have done. Let him be blessed. How do we know that he is so blessed? We know him by who he is, but we also know him by the benefits he gives to us. Because he, continuing in verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For those who make Christian blessing just about a job promotion, or money, or anything else. They completely missed the point. That is a whole different gospel. Our blessings will not perish away and will not change with the economy. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. We could spend years studying Ephesians 1. But when we think about God's plan of redemption, He predestined us for adoption. And this is all out of His love that we might be sons through Jesus Christ. And he continues on in verse 6 to the praise of His glorious grace. Every time we think about that Jesus would send his, or excuse me, that the Father would send the Son. That we might become sons, that we might be adopted. Praise his glorious grace, with which we are blessed in the beloved, our blessings in Christ. This begins with union with Christ. This cannot be separated from the work of the Son to the glory of the Father. And this is nothing new. This promise, you see, seeds of it all throughout the Old Testament. A great summary is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Excuse me, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul is talking about the distinction between the things of God that are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And again, this, we've talked about this before, but this does not just apply to marriage. Being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, you cannot have things in common with someone who is a temple of idols. Pick up in verse 16, this is a summary of Old Testament redemption that Paul declares, but look at how this is explained and look at the language as we get to verse 18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God had said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. God's concern is unity with his people and their holiness. And how will he relate to them? Then I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, says, I will be your father. You will be my sons and daughters. The same God with the same plan now opens it up before us. That This is how it is accomplished through his son that we might be sons. And then it brings us to Romans 8. I hope i got time to go through Romans 8. Um, we will have time to go through Romans 8. Uh, One of the greatest, most encouraging passages in all of Scripture, without question. Romans 8, um, if you have your Bibles, open up there. Uh, This will not be on the screen this morning, so if there's someone near you who doesn't have a Bible, doesn't know where to find it, help them find it. Because I want you to be in the passage. I want you to read through this. I want you to see it with your own eyes. I want you to watch this develop. Because Romans 8 is so long and so great, it's easy to kind of pop in and out because there's so many encouraging verses, but if you get the context and what Paul is laying out here, you will see that this is meant to encourage the church, to give us confidence and assurance in Christ. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you may be familiar with some of these verses. These are some of the most beloved verses that have been on many t-shirts, bumper stickers, and bracelets. Those are all good things, but once we see them in their context... Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We love that one. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 15, which we're going to spend a lot of time on this morning. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit, the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what to pray as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words verse 28 we know well and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose verse 31 what shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us verse 35 what shall separate us from the love of christ or tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Those are just the highlights. Uh, and we will go through all of Romans 8 this morning. Not in the same depth. But, um, but what I want you to see is that all these things are connected. And right in the middle of it, the, the, the hinge of all this is that the Father sent the Son that we might be adopted into his family. And you do not have this assurance without being adopted into his family. One more thing I want you to see as we read through Romans 8. I want you to see the beautiful nature of God's identity here. We see Father, Son, and Spirit. We see everything to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. It's going to be worked out, especially in verses 1 through 3. So if you have your bibles I'm going to read 1 through 17. We're going to land on 14 through 17 and then we're going to close in the remainder of the chapter. Romans 8 begin in verse 1. Pay attention to the language here. This is no disconnected God. This is Father, Son and Spirit in perfect triune unity. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If that does not give you confidence, we need to talk afterward. Let's pray. Blessed be you, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that you would bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? How is it that you would send your Son that He might stand in our place, that we might never be condemned? How is it that you would send your Spirit to dwell within us, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that we might have life and peace and walk in righteousness? How could we ever imagine? How could we ever repay We couldn't, we can't, and we won't even try, but we will praise you for what you have done. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for sending your Spirit. Thank you for adopting us in love and bringing us into your home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you see why I read the beginning. If we just jump into verse 12, so then, brothers... The so then doesn't mean much if you don't know what the then is referring to. So the first thing I want to get out here is so then, brothers, in verse 12. I just want to be honest with you. This is a family conversation. Meaning, if you are not part of the family, if you are not a son, if you do not know what it means to be united to Christ, you're listening in a family conversation, and I want you to. I want you to lean in this. You're sitting at the dinner, at the dinner table, and they're talking about how great their, their family are. Because I want you to know that. And I want you to know that these promises are for whoever believes. But if you don't understand what it means to be a brother, if you don't understand what it means to have your sins forgiven, then lean in and listen closely. And if you do, lean in and listen closely. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Debtors. What does that mean? Without Christ, there is a debt that is owed. That is owed. There is sin that must be paid for because God is holy and righteous, and He must punish sin, or else He would not be just. But without Christ, there is a debt that must be paid. But in Christ, the debt has been paid. And so we are debtors in a different way in Christ. Our price has been paid, so we are indebted to Him. We are sinful, and we are sinners, and that has been taken care of in Christ. And we are debtors in the sense that we cannot repay it. So we live the rest of our lives knowing that I have been let off from a sentence that I could never begin to repay. And I am indebted to my God. And so, because there is another type of debt, Paul has to clarify here in verse 13. You're going to see three of these fours, F-O-R, also because, In the Greek, just helping us understand why he's getting where he's getting at. His explanation of verse 12 is in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why are we so passionate about this? Why am I sweating and raising my voice up here? Because as Paul says, this is literally a matter of life and death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And not just the death that everybody's worried about with this virus where your body stops. Death that will be separated from God in the wickedest darkness and blackness of hell that is misery forever. That is true death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you are here, you are either living or we want you to live. This is why we gather. This is why we proclaim this. As we saw in 1 John... How you live is a great indicator of who you are. Your identity drives your actions. If you continue sinning, if you continue loving the things of the world, you may want to ask, do I truly love God or do I love the world? But those who continue in righteousness, there is life. And how do we continue? Not in our own strength, because we're sinful. We love our flesh. But verse 14, the second four, because all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. This is a direct, completed relationship for all those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God right now. If you are led by the Spirit, if the Spirit is in you, you are a son. And the Spirit and Father are always in perfect agreement. When the Spirit leads, it is because the Father directs. It is because the Son has accomplished. And so there needs to be a little bit of clarification because whenever we look at this, inevitably there's always someone who asks, well, what about sisters? Why does it just say, say brothers? So, but you at ease. The word in the Greek, when it says brothers, can apply it to brothers and sisters. It is, a, it is a broad term. But it is used and not a different term for a reason. Because in their culture, like I said, we have to be careful when we read Scripture as, as only enlightened Westerners. But in Eastern culture, only a son could be an heir. Only a son could earn, earn property. Only a son could wear the father's name. Ladies, If you are in Christ, you are a son in the best sense of the word. You are an heir. You have all the blessings and inheritance of the Father. Just like we talked about a couple weeks, guys, the only time we can ever say we are the bride of Christ, a bride of anything, is when we are the bride of Christ, and it is a good thing. The other clarification that we need to talk about here, something that we hear often in our culture, we've all heard someone say, well, we're all sons of God. This is also a lie that we do not see in Scripture. This is the foundation of universalism and liberalism. that says, well, everyone's not really that that, that bad. We're all sons of God, and that's why people have a hard time with God sending people to hell. Because what kind of father would do this kind of eternal child abuse and, and, and send his children to hell? I'll tell you right now, God does not send any of his children to hell. Not a one. He sends the children of their father, Satan, to hell. This is important here that we get this distinction. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This still goes back to those who are justified in chapter 5, those who are baptized in chapter 6, those who are in Christ Jesus throughout the rest of chapter 8. So why do I bring this up? Why do I bring up that liberalism and universalism and and all these other isms why does it why does it matter why can't we just say that all are sons of God because then the gospel has no weight if we're all sons if we're all equal then we just go out and do what we want because God's just arbitrary anyway and he hates some of his sons and he, and he loves other ones that's not true if you are his son he loves you without question and we must have this down otherwise the gospel has no meaning and so to unpack this a little bit I want to break down Galatians three. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 3. Three more books uh, to the right in your Bible. Because we spent some time on it earlier, but it is important when we read it in corporate reading. But I want to just bring a couple things to, to your attention. If I knock it over, it'll be okay. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you must be united with Christ. You are sons of God through faith. Draws the line right there. We're we're not all sons of God. Case closed. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then you got this, the, the picture of union with Christ continues. Baptism and union with Christ. For all who put on Christ, excuse me, all who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And now our identity comes out of that. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor, nor female. doesn't mean we stop being male and female. We can cross-dress and all that craziness. It means that now our primary identity is in Christ, not male and not female, not Jew and not Gentile. Your skin color doesn't change. Your gender doesn't change. Your identity, your primary identity changes. First and foremost, you are in Christ. And if you are Christ. Verse 29, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul's whole point in Galatians is, who's in Abraham? Is it the circumcised or the uncircumcised? And he's saying, you're missing the point. It is those who have faith in the Lord God. Those are the heirs of Christ. And he goes on, or heirs of, uh, yeah, heirs of Christ. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Uh, This is an analogy. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But Paul is talking about that when a child grows up in a house, he doesn't have all of the, the rights of the king until the proper time. But he is under the guardians and managers of the date set by his father. In the same way, this is God's plan of redemption. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He sent Jesus so that we might be redeemed as sons. But also, he didn't just send Jesus, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Father sends the Son, the Father sends the Spirit, one, to accomplish our adoption, two, to seal it and confirm it within us, so that... Out of our hearts, when we cry, God, our Father, our Abba, we really mean it because the Spirit indwells within us, because the Son accomplished it for us. And so, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a great encouragement. You're no longer under the managers of the principles of this world. Don't feel burdened by everything that can weigh you down in human reasoning. If you are in Christ through faith, you are a son and no longer a slave. So act like it. But we have to be careful here because sonship is not owed. And for those who say we are all sons of God, it is a lie and a dangerous doctrine. Sonship is not owed, it is bestowed. As we saw in John 1, to all who believe he gave the right to be called children of God. And as we see in Galatians, through faith. I love Jad Packer's summary here. Um, again, if you read one book on Christian doctrine and Christian life, you could not go wrong with Jad Packer's Knowing God. But I like his, his summary here, especially the Sons of God chapter. Adoption, by its very nature, is an art of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do so because you choose to, not because you are bound to. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. He has no duty to do so. He need not have done anything about our sins except punish us as we deserved. But he loved us, so he redeemed us, forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters, and gave himself to us as our father." As we look back in Romans, I think that God didn't have to do this. God desired to do this. This is part of God's plan A to do this. And so what did we receive when God chose to do this? Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Slavery versus spirit of adoption. There's two conflicting spirits here. This is a a, a spiritual issue. You're either a slave or you are adopted. Let's look at these two for a moment. What does it mean to be a slave, or what did it mean to be a slave in that culture? One, you did not have any inheritance. You did not have any identity. Um, You had no assurance. You were essentially helpless. You had no advocates in court. You You were fearful because at any time your master could sell you or beat you or worse, and you were nothing but property. So I was thinking about the difference between a child who's left alone We've seen a little child who every loud noise scares them. Every new person that they they, they don't recognize, they're fearful of. So many Christians live like this. Or people calling themselves Christians. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they're fearful of everything. They're fearful of the changing world around them. They are fearful of their own frailty. They're fearful of every boogeyman around every corner. Do you want to live like that? Do you live like that? Because if we truly understand our adoption, we don't live like that. But Look at the other side of the coin. You have not received that spirit, but you've received the spirit of adoption. Not some evil spirit of fear, but the spirit of a holy God. If you receive the spirit of adoption, you have no fear. You have complete assurance and confidence of a son. Now think about that same child who's scared by himself in a place he does not know. That same child sitting on his father's lap is not worried. He's not scared by loud noises. He looks up, my father's here, nothing's going to happen to me. In such a simple way, children get that. But as adults, how often do we miss that? Are we so driven by our fear and we find our identity in the things of this world, but we don't realize if we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear. Because at a moment's notice, we can cry out, Abba, Father. And it is that Spirit by whom we cry, the Spirit that He sent to dwell in us, that we would walk in righteousness, but also give us a communication language. Put words in our mouth and thoughts in our heart that are not ours, but can open up this communication between us and the Lord. Like little babies, who are given voice for the first time to cry out to mommy and daddy. Newborn little children in Christ are given a voice to cry out to their father and he hears them because he has adopted them because they are his this is why prayer is powerful because it's not just us muttering into the air or hoping against hope but it is a child talking to a father who loves and cares as we sit on his lap so then as we think about this why did Jesus instruct us to pray Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus was setting them up for that. Because think about this. If we approach God in our prayers as merely creator, as merely this big cosmic giant who put all things into motion and he is great and he is awesome and he is powerful, we should be scared. Because we have no hope that a creator would care about us. But if that creator is also Father... He loves us. He brought us into his family. How much different do we approach prayer? There's an intimacy there. If we understand our relationship with him and we can cry out or just softly mutter, Abba, Aramaic for Father, Father, Dad, I screwed up. I need help. I'm helpless without you. I know I shouldn't be afraid, but I'm afraid. That's why that distinction is so important that we understand what it means to be adopted because everything changes in the Christian life. But how that distinction is possible is also important. We can't miss that. How is this brought together? Look at Hebrews 2.17. Hebrews 2 is a chapter about the, the sons of God and what God does in them, but there's one son in particular Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that's Christ, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Big word, propitiation, means the perfect price paid. He had to be like his brothers in every way. He had to take on flesh, he had to eat and sleep and live and die so that as high priest he could make the perfect price for them. J.I. Packer, in his book about, in Knowing God, in the chapter, he talks about uh, the, great, the most pregnant summary of the gospel. So remember someone uses the word pregnant. You picture a woman who is pregnant and it's about to come out. That's what it means for a word, for a definition to be pregnant. He says the most pregnant definition of the gospel is adoption through propitiation. What that means is there's a perfect price that was paid so that you could be adopted. And there's so many layers to this. But it is redemption, it is sacrifice, it is justification, it is all that so that you might be adopted as sons, not just purely forgiven, but brought in with an identity. And that gives you confidence and no fear. Amen? And how do we know? How do we know that this is true? Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God the same Spirit that ascended on the Son as a dove, the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, the same Spirit that Jesus promised to send, He testifies to us. The Spirit of God was sent to us to confirm it. Our adoption papers are sealed by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And it seals and secures new sons because of the work of the Son, because of the sending of the Father. If your gospel is smaller than this. Your gospel is too small. And I know we're covering a lot. And I know I'm doing a lot. And if you have any questions, let me know. Go back and read these passages. Write them down. Think about them. Because this means so much for the believer. And it means so much if you don't believe as well. His Spirit confirms, testifies with our spirit. When we hear the things of God and the Word of God, there's a communication that happens, spiritual things to spiritual people that you can't hear if you're not a son. That's a frequency you can't turn into, tune into. But if you are a son, there's a spiritual conversation and confirmation that is going on that is just amazing and mind-blowing. It testifies to the Father, this one belongs to Christ. It testifies to you, you belong to Christ. The Father has sent Him for you. There's this testifying back and forth of who we belong to. I wish I could spend more time on this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Follow this train here. If you're children, you're children in any way. If you're a child, you're an heir. That means you you get something from your, your, your father. Not just an heir, an heir of God, God your father and fellow heirs with Christ. The fortune of the God who owns everything, who made everything, is now your inheritance through Christ. Think about that. We are fellow heirs with Christ. For us to even be mentioned in the same sentence with Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, should drop us to our knees once we pull our our jaws off the floor. That's a whole different thing. Um, That is just amazing. The church's identity as family, as brothers and sisters, as sons, is so beautifully woven into the life of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we are brought into that family. We are so intimately tied to our God and everything that is good and gracious about Him That's why the gospel is so beautiful, because yes, it means forgiveness of sins. But it also means that you are a child of the king. He has saved a room for you, and not just a room, but reign over his kingdom. And his storehouse is full of eternal blessings. And if that is how the Father sees us, how should we see one another? When you look at other believers, get on your nerves, don't say the right thing, sing out of tune, do you see them as fellow heirs in Christ? Do you see them the same way the Father sees them, the way the Son sees them? This is how we should look at one another. Am I going to finish? Yeah, I'm going to finish. All right, bear with me. Five to ten more minutes. Um, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All sounds good, right? Good to go. Close it up. Let's go home. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Wait a second. It's not what I signed up for. It's not what I was sold. Any of you who someone shared the gospel with you and told you everything is going to be all right or continues to tell you everything is going to be all right, they are a liar. Don't listen to them. Plug your ears and walk in the other direction. Because if you read the scriptures, it says something very differently. Provided... That we suffer also with him in order that we may be glorified with him. But well, wait a second. That doesn't sound right. How is Jesus treated? If we're united with Christ, we're united with him in all things. They hated him. Mocked him, spit at him, crucified him. Still curse him to this day. We take on his name, we take on what he takes on. But if you look at the rest of this chapter and we will jump right in here this shows us how the christian views suffering look at verse 19 for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us throw at me what you will my father has given me an inheritance i am an adopted son i don't care what you think you can do to me amen so sake of time i'm going to run through this Quickly, I'm going to read this. I'm going to emphasize it. Um, Your homework this week. Spend time in Romans 8. Your homework for the rest of your life. Spend time in Romans 8. Now I want you to see how adoption is drawn out and how adoption drives the rest of this passage. You cannot understand the rest of chapter 8 unless you understand adoption. Look at the promise, not just to us, but to all of creation, picking up in verse 19. Verse 19. For the creation, meaning the rocks, the dirt, the trees, the stars, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation waits for the sons of God to be revealed. They're on the edge of their seat, seeing how many more is God going to redeem when God brings them all together. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope This is all part of God's plan. He was not caught off guard by the fall. That, the creation itself, will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Wait a second. We have a glory that is greater than the rest of creation and that everything that God is doing in redemption and in recreation is focused on us and then the rest of the creation is going to follow suit? The consummation... Of all things, when Christ returns and makes it all new, this is the fullness of our adoption. That the rest of the world is going to see the glory of God through the glory of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Wait a second we already had adoption. You do. But like we talk about often, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Your adoption has been sealed, but it is not complete yet. You are not fully a son because you still stink of this earth. But when Christ returns, your adoption will be complete and that we wait for eagerly because this frail body and everything that is wrong with me is not the end of my story. For in this hope we are saved we were saved excuse me now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience this is where we are now our hope is in things to come and and, and we and we wait patiently Because our hope is in something that is done and accomplished for us in Christ. But we're not alone. We're not left without encouragement during this time. Our comforter is still with us. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. How do we know how to pray? Those of you who tell me, I don't know how to pray. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Open your mouth and talk. He will teach you how to pray. The groanings of your heart he will put into words, but you must do it. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That verse that means so much to so many people, how much sweeter does it sound now with adoption? And the Spirit testifies to us the mind and things of God, God's plan. This is not outside of God's plan of redemption, it is part of it. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Adoption language, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ's new life gives us new life and new identity as adopted sons. And those who we predestined, he also called. Those we he called, he also justified. Those we he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? From the beginning to the end God has you if you are his. He knows you. He will bring you all the way on to perfection. Rest in that. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? What else do we say? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we also not with him graciously give us all things? If you're afraid that God won't provide and God won't care for you, read Romans eight. He sent his son for you. You don't think he'll make the light bill or provide in this in, in this way? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, the chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. The Spirit teaches us how to pray because the the Son is interceding for us. Every prayer that goes up, in my spirit, in my blood, to my Father. He lives to intercede for us, as Hebrews tells us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is what the love of God means. When people say God is love, they do not understand love. This is what love means. He would send his son, that he would die, that you would become adopted sons, that you would sit at the table of a loving God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? I think a lot of Christians need to read this in 2020. Or persecution or famine or nakedness? God laughs at these things. Or danger or sword? That is what is given to the church in adoption. That is the love of God. So I just want to leave you with a couple questions. Can you cry out to Abba, Father, without fear, in confidence? Do you know that you are a child of God? Maybe your idea of a child of God has been shaken up and hope he continues to shake you up. But if you are a child of God, then how? And if your claim is anything other than I am united to Christ because of his sacrifice, because of his blood uh, applied to my sins, because of his price for my life, because of his continual intercession for me before the Father, then it is not good enough. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, and that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if your faith is in Him, you are adopted. Rejoice. The Father has made His church sons. In the best sense of the word, fellow heirs with the eternal Son to be His sons forever through his spirit of adoption this is truly amazing and awe-inspiring and this ladies and gentlemen is the gospel let's pray our father in heaven what can we say that has not been said in your word already What can we say that you have not put in our mouths? What can we feel that you have not put in our hearts? What can we do that is not from you? All we can say is praise your glorious grace. Praise your amazing grace that would call us, that would redeem us, that would adopt us, that would give us an inheritance with Christ. Lord, I pray that you encourage your body this morning. I pray that your saints would be renewed with a zeal and a vigor and stand tall and confidently in Jesus Christ their Lord. I'm a child of the King. My sins have been forgiven. I've been adopted into His family. I have a seat at His table and nothing will separate me from Him. And for those here this morning, or I may sound like Charlie Brown's teacher, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit draw them, Your Spirit work within them, that You would open eyes and open ears, that lost sheep would come home, lost coins would be found, that they would know what it means to be truly alive and free from the slavery of sin in the flesh, that You would be glorified in their lives. That the entire world would be a witness that you are the God who saves, you are the God who redeems, the, the God who loves, the God who adopts, and the God who preserves us to the very end. We praise you, our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.